0: So, good morning. Uh, let me open us up in prayer. And Brother Mike, do you mind closing that door, brother? Yes. And if you see anybody out there, lasso them, hogtie them, bring them in. All right? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this time that you've given to us. And Lord, we're here to honor you. And Father, we ask you to glorify your great name through the teaching of your word, that, we, that you would help all your servants hear, hear your word rightly. Lord, that we would learn and grow in grace, mature in the faith and apply what we've learned and to make your name great wherever we go. In Christ we pray. Amen. So the topic this morning is the topic of how to share the gospel with Roman Catholic friends. Roman Catholic friends. So how many of you have actually grown up in a Roman Catholic home? So we have one, two, three, I'm sure there's more people here that have grown up in a Roman Catholic home. And would you say your home is actually practicing Roman Catholic? Practicing Roman Catholic? Practicing, no? Not, okay. So it seems to me there are, there are two types of Roman Catholics, uh, those who practice, uh, those who believe, uh, Roman Catholic traditional dogma and those who identify as Roman Catholic but they're not practicing. Uh, in other words, it's more of identity. It's more of community as opposed to doctrine. Okay, how many of you have Roman Catholic friends and family? I mean outside of your immediate family. You have family and friends outside of your family that are Roman Catholic. Okay, so quite a bit. So, there was a, a study back in 2000, and this data is old, and I'm sure this number is uh, much larger than it was, but in 2000, there was roughly 2 billion professing Christians in the world, and out of that 2 billion, over a billion identified themselves as Roman Catholic. Most Roman Catholics live in Latin American countries. Uh, They live in South America, Latin America, a large population of uh, Roman Catholics live in Brazil, South America. Um, I've seen that with my own eyes. I used to live in, uh, in Rio when I was a child, um, and so Roman Catholicism is all over the place. It's also difficult when we address this topic of Roman Catholicism, to treat Roman Catholicism as a separate religion as opposed to a purely Christian religion. And when I say Christian religion, what I'm saying is it's based on the Word of God. There's a biblical Christianity, and then there's a Roman Catholicism um, behind that, so to speak. What's interesting is that Bible believers and Roman Catholics use a lot of the same terminology and language. They use the word Jesus Christ, Uh, they use the word sin, they use the word grace, they use the word atonement, they use the word justification, they use a lot of the language that we use as Bible believers today. And, you know, they say they believe in the Bible, which I believe there's a certain degree of truth to that. They believe in God, they believe that Jesus died for sin and he's the son of God. So they say things that are true. However, if you actually read the definitions of what they're saying, it means something completely different, okay? So I'm going to address some definitions later on so it helps us to understand where they're coming from. So my point this morning is not to uh, lambast Roman Catholics. I have a lot of family, I have a lot of friends that are Roman Catholics. I'm very sympathetic towards their position. Uh, my heart breaks for them, because as a Bible believer, uh, I've committed my life to the Word of God, and so the language that they use is similar to our language, but I want to argue that the definitions are different. That's where the rub is. That's where the conflict and the tension is, is the definition. So I want to address definitions here later on this morning. Um, so, but I also want to say this, that not all Roman Catholics not all of them, hold to faith plus works unto salvation. Faith plus works unto salvation. That is the Roman Catholic position. And the reason I say that is, again, I have family and friends who are in the Roman Catholic Church, and when you have discussions with them and you define the terms, they actually do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They do believe that salvation comes by faith in Him. And I have a a dear friend by the name of John who identifies strongly as a Roman Catholic. And I've asked him, I said, who is Jesus? He'll give me a biblical definition. I'll say, what has he done for sinners? And he'll give me a biblical exposition on the atoning work of Christ. And then I'll ask them, ask him, what does it take to be saved? And he'll say, faith in Christ. And I, say, and I respond by saying, plus what? That's the key question, plus what? And he'll say, plus nothing. And I say, well, what do you mean by that? He says, I believe that Jesus is the only Savior. You have to believe in him for salvation. And I said, in him alone? And he'll say yes. So what I learned from that is that there are Roman Catholics that identify as Roman Catholics, but they do not hold to the position of faith plus works. Okay. But I would say that a majority of Roman Catholics hold to faith Plus works, which I'll address here in a minute. So, why do we assert that the Catholic Church is not a true Christian church or religion? Why do we say, as Protestants, that they're a false religion? I know that sounds mean and, dis, and disheartening. But again, it goes down to how do you define certain words? Okay? So, when we examine this, again, they have a different definition of certain key terms that are important to salvation. Roman Catholic teaching, traditional teaching, say and believe that salvation is through Christ, but not solely through faith in Christ alone. So it's faith in Christ, but it's not faith in Christ alone. In other words, the Protestant position is, in order to be saved, it's faith in Christ alone, that's it. End of statement. The Roman Catholic traditional teaching is faith in Christ plus some sort of work to be saved. So, grace, again, is a word that they use and we use, but it means something different. But grace is dispensed through people, either priests or saints, and objects, which are sacraments. And there's no required response of repentance. And faith on the person who receives grace. In other words, they just receive grace, but they're under no mandatory uh, situation to respond in faith. So Roman Catholics, um, in general, have different positions than Protestants. We are Protestants. But also, a lot of Protestants want to talk about issues that I think are not the heart of the gospel. In other words, they want to talk about hot topics like what are saints and the purpose of saints and try to break down that argument or deconstruct that argument. They want to talk about indulgences, which I'll go into here in a minute. They want to deconstruct purgatory or the pope. But I would argue that those items are important, but that's not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need to be clear on what the gospel is. We need to be clear on our terms. We need to be clear on our definitions as we talk to friends who are in the Roman Catholic religion. So our goal here is to help them see the differences. Our goal here is to pray for them, that God would soften their hearts and change their hearts. So I want to address some key doctrines this morning from a Roman Catholic traditional position. So when we think about Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church is the official body that teaches and propagates Catholic doctrine and dogma. When we think about Roman Catholics, uh, we need to have a conversation with them. Now, I know that many of us who are Protestants, we love to get into debates. We love to argue for the sake of arguing. Um, I think there's a time and a place for that. But if we care for people's souls, we need to have an actual conversation with them. A gracious, kind, winsome, but firm in the gospel conversation. We don't need to argue with them for the sake of arguing. So I would just encourage you, have conversations With people. So, there's two broad categories that I want to address this morning. The first broad category is the doctrine of the Word of God. How do Roman Catholics look at the Word of God? And the second broad category is the doctrine of salvation. Okay, the doctrine of the Word of God and the doctrine of salvation. We need to be clear in these two broad categories if we're going to have any sort of headway with Roman Catholics, obviously by God's help and grace. So one question that is posed for us, or for them, really is, why do you think your position is true? What's your authority? That's the question we need to ask. What is their position on the Word of God? The Roman Catholic Church flows logically from the way that they view authority. When we ask questions about authority, certain things become clear. I don't know if you're familiar with the name Ray Galea. Ray Galea was a former Roman Catholic who turned to Anglicanism. And this is what he says as a devout former Roman Catholic in regards to authority. This is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Quote, Bible alone leads to Christ alone. The Bible alone leads to Christ alone. As Protestants, we don't have an issue with that statement right there. The issue is when we start going forward with the rest of the statement. The Bible plus some other means of revelation leads leads to Christ. Do you hear that? The Bible plus some other means of revelations leads to Christ plus some other means of salvation. So they start off, well, Bible alone leads to Christ alone, but when you start adding other things, like tradition, other revelation, which leads to salvation, that's where the issue becomes apparent. And here's the key for the Roman Catholic Church, that their position on authority is this. It is not sufficient, um, it is not sufficient and can only be rightly interpreted, rightly interpreted by the clergy. In other words, the authority of the Bible is an authority, but to interpret that authority properly, it must be by clergy of the Roman Catholic Church and no one else. That's, that's their position. So the Roman Catholic Church puts itself above God's Word. So if God's Word says this, whatever X is, the Roman Catholic Church and their clergy has placed themselves above the Bible to interpret the Bible, then given to the people. As opposed to the Bible is the ultimate standard and authority, and what the Bible says is clear. Now, granted, there are some areas in the Bible that seem to be confusing and are unclear, but the Bible can clear up those confusing Parts. In other words, the Bible interprets the Bible. That's known as the analogy of faith. Whatever's clear in the Bible can help clear up the unclear parts of the Bible. So you take scripture to define scripture or scripture to interpret scripture. So there's, the Bible is clear. So that's their position that the church is above the Bible and the church determines what is canonical. Canonical simply means, the, the word canon comes from the word read. Okay? Read is a standard. It's straight, here's the standard, and when we look at the Bible, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, 39, 27 is 66. Okay? But it's the church who det- that determines what the Bible is. Now, as Protestants, we don't take that position. As Protestants, we take the position that God's Word is enough, and it's the church's job to affirm God's Word, not to create God's Word. Okay? That's the difference there. So, when we think of texts like Matthew 16, 19, so I want us to turn there, and my hope this morning is that I've, I don't know who tasked me with this, but whoever the person is who tasked me with this gave me a uh, pretty large topic to address in a limited period of time. So my goal is to get through a lot of this data or information. I'll leave uh, some time, Lord willing, at the end of the class for questions. But I want to try to get through most of this if if the Lord wills. So Matthew 16, 19. This is on their interpretation of of authority, which will help you when you evangelize Roman Catholics, okay? Roman, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, 19. Matthew 16, 19. And it says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the way that they look at this verse, is that the church, Okay, the church has the power to bind and loose, which means that the authority of the church is the authority to absolve sins, meaning forgive sins, to pronounce doctrinal judgments, and to make disciplinary decisions in the church. Disciplinary decisions in the church. Now, as Baptists, We don't have a problem with the part that states making disciplinary decisions in the church. We're talking about church discipline or excommunication. We don't have a problem with that. We have a problem with the part that says to absolve sins, okay, to absolve sins primarily. So when we think about this, is this text talking about the church having the authority to absolve sins, well, I want to bring your attention to verse 13. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So Jesus talks to his disciples, and he says, Who do the outsiders Right? Who do the people say that I am? And the disciples respond by saying, well, one of the prophets. And then he gives them this list. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Then Jesus asks the disciples again another question. And the second question is, but who do you say that I am? Now, instead of asking the crowd, the outside crowd, he asks God's people, specifically the disciples, who do you say that I am? and Simon Peter in verse 16 replied You are the Christ the son of the living God Do you hear that You are the Christ the son of the living God and listen to what Jesus responds to in verse 17 Jesus answered him and said Blessed are you Simon Barjonah for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is where in heaven So God, the Holy Spirit, had revealed it to the disciples, especially Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon Peter, right, that Jesus is who? The Christ, the Son of the living God. And then verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So when you read the whole context... Right? This is not talking about absolving sin, even though the Roman Catholic Church teaches that. If you read the entire context, this is known as the Caesarean Philippi Confession. Caesarean Philippi Confession. The question is who do the people say that I am? As a matter of fact, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ the old testament promised messiah the son of the living god that is known as the cesarean philippi confession so where the catholic church says the church is built upon peter okay because it says here and i tell you you are peter on you are peter and on this rock i will build my church but as protestants especially baptists The church is built not on Peter, but on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see the difference? Because if you don't understand that, you're going to have a difficult time talking to Roman Catholics, especially when it comes to this verse. Okay, So Roman Catholics have an unbiblical doctrine of the word. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. All you have to do is just read one word or maybe one sentence. But as Bible believers, we want to interpret the Bible correctly. That's why we read multiple verses. right? You've got to read the whole context. You've got to read the whole story. But then Roman Catholic friends, they, they counter-argue by saying, Well, how do you know you're reading your Bible correctly? people interpret the Bible different. How do you know your way is right? Now, I hear that not simply from Roman Catholics. I hear that from just about every religion under the sun. So, certain people are to properly interpret the Bible according to Roman Catholic dogma. Quote, the task of giving authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether it is in written form Okay, we don't have a problem with that statement. Here's the problem we have. Or in the form of tradition, capital T. In the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church. The other problem is this word living. Because if you take that word at face value, if the office, this particular office of the church is a teaching office, but it's a living office, The living teaching office then can change or evolve throughout time. Why? Because you're alive. Does that make sense? This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to one group of people in the Roman Catholic Church, and that one group is bishops, our bishops, in communion with the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome. So that's how they look. So when we read Matthew 16, 19... They look at Peter as the bishop of Rome, the first apostle. So when we think about this, they have a different view of interpretation. They say the Bible is good and you should interpret the Bible, but that Bible should be interpreted by who? Only the clergy and also tradition. They, what they do is they take unwritten traditions, okay, so back then in biblical times it was an oral society, okay? So what people would say and what they remember of what people say would count as tradition because it wasn't written, it was unwritten. Then it falls under a capital T, which is tradition, and they put tradition equal to the Bible, okay? So it's no longer that the Word of God is sufficient. It's now unwritten tradition, risen to the same level as the Bible. So tradition, according to them, is the body of unwritten knowledge given by Christ to the apostles and handed down to and through the bishops. So if Peter is the bishop of Rome, the first original apostle, and you come down this line of apostles, then if you stay in that same line, then you're part of what's called the true church, according to them. Okay? Because it's apostolic succession. So this argument flows from the belief that the synoptic gospels were constructed from stories and memories that the first Christian passed down. So when it comes to tradition, they're saying that the Gospels were written from stories and memories that Christians had passed down from generation to generation. In other words, you must refer to tradition to have an authentic interpretation of the Bible. Did you hear that? You have to rely, your default position is, you've got to rely on tradition in order to interpret the Bible correctly. That's a problem. Because what you're saying, whether they want to admit it or not, what you're saying is, the Bible is good, but it's not really good. The Bible's perfect, but it's not really perfect. The Bible's inspired, but not fully inspired. The Bible is closed canon, meaning 66 books, but... Those 66 books mean nothing without tradition. Do you see the problem with that? Yeah. There's a major problem with that. You must refer to tradition to have an authentic interpretation of the Bible. Quote, the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from Holy Scripture alone. That's a problem. That's a problematic statement. So, what they're saying is tradition and Scripture must be accepted and honored as equal. Tradition, Scripture, and Magisterium. Magisterium is defined as the teaching body of the Catholic Church, are so connected, those three, Tradition, Scripture, and the Magisterium, they're so closely connected and associated that one cannot stand without the others. They all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. Let me give you an example. 169 years ago, in 1854, Mary was declared by the church as born without original sin. Born without original sin, meaning she had never sinned. That concept is known as immaculate conception. I don't have a problem with the terms immaculate conception if it's only applied to Jesus. I do have a problem as a Bible believer when you take that term and apply it to Mary. That's a major problem. They don't quote scripture to prove Immaculate Conception for Mary. It's tradition. They don't use the Bible to prove their point. So I think that's a a major, major issue there, what the church did, Roman Catholic Church there did in 1854. So one of the other questions we need to address is so we now see how they look at the authority of the Word of God, Roman Catholics do. It's the Bible plus what? Tradition plus the magisterium, the teaching body, okay? That's how they look at authority of the Word of God. You have to have those in place to have a correct interpretation of the Bible. Now, let's address the other broad category about salvation. Salvation. How are you made right with God? What will you do with your sin? Those are legitimate questions. And we need to ask those questions of our Roman Catholic friends. So there are six key terms that you should have in your bulletin. Uh, There's bulletins there and there. But there's six key terms that we use with Roman Catholics, but I want to define it from their position so you understand what they're saying when they're talking with you. Okay? So the first term is sin. Sin. In the Roman Catholic mindset or paradigm, they have uh, basically two categories of sin. One is called mortal sin, and one is called venial sin. Mortal sin and venial sin. Mortal sin is the true nature of sin. In other words, that's real sin. It's the act that transgresses the divine law of God... And severs one from God. So mortal sin, actually, when it's committed, destroys a person's relationship with God and severs and separates the sinner from God. That's mortal sin. And they get this from First uh, John 5:16 and 17. First John 5:16 and 17. From that verse, they believe that some sins lead to death and others do not lead to death. But I think if you, if you read this properly, let me back up. Their position is when they read 1 John 5, 16 and 17, uh, they apply it to the unforgivable sin. But I think in the natural reading of 1 John 5, 16 and 17, this is simply a refusal of the gospel. This is simply a refusal of the gospel if you read it in context. So what is the second type of sin? Venial sin. Venial sin does not destroy a union with God, or relationship with God, and it's repairable. So it's sin, but it's a lesser sin. It's a second-class sin. But this sin merits temporal punishment, but not eternal punishment. Okay? So mortal sin is real sin. So, violation of God's law separates them from God. Venial sin does not destroy the union with God. It's repairable, but it merits temporal punishment, not eternal punishment. This is what they say human nature has not been totally corrupted, it is wounded in the natural powers proper to it. Baptism erases original sin and turns a man back towards God. So by the mere act of baptizing, well, in the Roman Catholic Church, they baptize, when do they baptize? Children. Infants, right? I've attended those. So baptism itself erases, under Roman Catholic dogma, erases original sin and turns a man back to God. So that's how they look at sin. Second term, grace. Grace. What is the what is the biblical definition of grace, as Bible believers? How do we define grace? Unmerited favor. favor. How do you define the word unmerited? We didn't deserve it. What's that? We didn't deserve deserve it, right? So we didn't. To merit means to work or to earn God's grace, but the definition is unmerited grace, right? So we're receiving something that we did not earn, or deserve, okay? Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, if you ask them what does grace mean, it can mean a multiple of things, okay? It's not only favor from God, but it also means assistance from God to get grace. You see how they changed the definition? They changed the definition. It's assistance God gives us in order to earn God's favor. So their definition is you can actually earn or work and receive God's favor if you do your part. This grace given can be through baptism, but it's not merited in baptism. Okay? But this grace is given through the rest of the life. So in other words, when a child, an infant, is baptized, they're not meriting anything. But from baptism on the rest of their life, they're meriting this form of grace. In other words, when you hear the word grace under that type of context, what it means is God's assistance to earn grace. Okay. So they believe that man is not spiritually dead, that man cooperates with God, and when man cooperates with God properly, this free gift of grace can be merited. Now, if you understand biblical terms, that just messes up your mind, right? It, it, really, it really does. That's why definitions matter. Definitions matter. Also, salvation, uh, again, is when man cooperates with God And they believe that mankind is still very good today because in the Garden of Eden, their position is God created man and mankind was good and we're still good today in our natural state. Well, they have not properly understood Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man. Okay, So according to their position, man is not spiritually dead. Man is spiritually alive and spiritually good. He just needs a little help from God in order to earn God's grace. And when this happens, they're converted. That's their position. When this happens, they're converted. They're converted by their own justification. How? By freely assenting to and cooperating with that grace or assistance from God. So, in other words, I know this sounds weird, but you can, in the Roman Catholic Church, you can actually justify yourself if you cooperate with God properly. So, in their point of view, grace is a process. Grace is not a one-time situation. Grace is a process. They follow this path of obligatory ritual. This free gift, which is astounding is given and can be taken away based off of the person's performance. Does that sound like grace? No. If you receive a wonderful Christmas gift, not because you earned it, but somebody gives you this wonderful Christmas gift, and then a week later in January, like, ah, oh, I don't like you because you didn't brush your teeth, and they take your, take your gift away. Was that a free gift to begin with? No. Why? Because it was based off of performance not off of halitosis. You understand me, right? So that's not a free gift if you define it that way. So this term of grace is a process. Also justification, next term, justification is also another process. It's another process. I don't know if you're familiar with the Council of Trent in the 16th century. Are anybody familiar with that term? Okay, in the 16th century. So in 1545 in northern Italy, I think it was the 19th ecumenical church meeting, and they discussed uh, this topic of justification. And in this Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church vehemently rejected, vehemently rejected salvation by faith alone. They don't have a problem salvation by faith. Right? Sola fide. Where's solafide? Sola fide yeah sola fide they they have a problem with that faith alone okay this is what they said quote if anyone say that by faith alone the impious is justified in other words sinners are justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtaining the grace of justification let him be anathema let him be anathema If you understand that word anathema in the context of Galatians, the book of Galatians, anathema is a word that simply means let this person be dedicated to full destruction by God. Be judged and destroyed by God. I mean, that's a very heavy word in the New Testament. So that's their position. They're saying that if anyone... Or anybody says that to be justified is by faith alone, in Christ alone, let this person be anathema. In other words, they need to be justified by holding to the Word of God tradition, right? And they need to cooperate with God. That's the key language. They need to cooperate with God. If they don't hold to that, let them be destroyed by God. The Roman Catholic Church has not abandoned this view. They still hold to this view positively. So, when we think about this, their definition of justification is different than our view of justification. That's why I said they use the same terms and the same words that we use, but when you ask them the definition, it means something different. What is the definition of justification from the Bible? Anyone? Okay, what does, the, what does justified mean, though? Thank you, Brother Daniel. Justification in the Bible is a legal term that comes from the highest courtroom in heaven, from God himself, the great judge of the entire universe. And God himself, the creator, has said in, in a legal declaration, it's a one-time legal declaration, this person is no longer guilty. No longer guilty of breaking God's law. That's the biblical definition of justification. It's a one-time deal. It's not a process. You work, earn, work, earn, work, earn. No. Do you believe in Christ? That's why I love the Bible. Because no other religion can claim that or offer that. So, Uh, according to them, justification is the work of God alone. We don't have a problem with that. But when you read the rest of the definition, presupposing, however, on the part of the adult, the process of justification and the cooperation of his free will with with God's preventing and helping grace. So again, they look at it as a process. Let's look at the next term, term number four, sacraments. Sacraments, I want to spend some time on this. What time do we have? I can't see that. 1026. Okay, 10:26. Oh, okay. Here we go. So sacraments, sacraments, and I don't know if you have room on your paper, but I hope you can write down some of this because I think it will be helpful. There are seven sacraments. There's a reason why there's seven sacraments. In in the Bible, the number seven is the number of perfection. So sacraments are things that a person does to earn God's favor or to earn salvation. And these seven sacraments are baptism, confirmation, communion, also called the Eucharist. We call it the Lord's Supper, penance, marriage, taking of holy orders, and the final rites before death. Performing these deeds or, or sacraments uh, earns God's favor. So when an infant is baptized at, what, one week old or two weeks old or however, that baptism actually in the Roman Catholic world earns God's favor. That's known as a sacrament. So I want to talk about these seven sacraments really quick. Number one, baptism. Baptism, okay? Uh, This baptism is conveyed as a grace and this is the grace of regeneration. In other words, when a child is baptized, a child is born again. And when this child is born again of the Spirit, this child's soul is changed forever, leaving this child justified in the sight of God, simply by water. If that were true, If that were biblically true, I would run around right now with two bottles of water and sprinkle everybody as much as I can. I would run down the streets with a fire hose and spray every car that drove by Spring Mountain. Why? Because they think that the magic and the power is in the water. Water is just water, right? Water is just water. So, They think that righteousness is infused. That's a key term. You have to write that down. down. Righteousness is infused or poured into the soul. So from a Protestant position, we believe that righteousness is imputed. Righteousness is transferred from Christ to the sinner by faith in Christ. That's the key. Righteousness that God requires is transferred or imputed from faith to Christ by faith in Christ. As opposed to baptism, says, I'm pouring water on this person, and therefore righteousness is infused in the soul. Catholics, Roman Catholics, infuse. Protestants, imputation. I hope that makes sense. All right. Confirmation, confirmation, confirmation is a separate rite, but confirmation cannot happen apart from baptism. If you're ever going to get to the stage of confirmation, you have to be baptized first in the Roman Catholic dogma and paradigm. So this is not considered a new infusion of grace, but what this is in, in confirmation, you've heard of confirmation classes, right? Our Roman Catholic friends attend. But what this is, is when baptism and confirmation are combined, it's an increase of grace into maturity. In other words, they're growing, they're maturing, their intellect is growing and maturing. They understand what they're about to do. It's called the age of discretion. The age of discretion is normally age seven. Normally age seven. The age of discretion. And what this person is saying is, I understand what I'm about to do. Okay, This is administered by the bishop, and it's anointing by oil and the laying of hands. So that's confirmation. Communion. They call it the Eucharist. Again, we call it the Lord's Supper. This is the miracle of the Mass, which is transubstantiation. That's what Roman Catholics believe. Transubstantiation. Trans is across. Substantiation is substance. So the substance is carried or moved across. And this comes from the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle, he taught that there's a difference between substance. Substance is the essence of a thing, right? It's the internal part of a thing or a person. And accidents, So think of the word accident, you know, car accident, but take out the T. Remove the T. You have the word accidents. Just take the the T off of it. And what accidents is, is that it's the external or the perceivable qualities of an object. In other words, if I look at this chair, the external, right, is the accidents, I could tell it's burgundy in color, it's shaped like an L, it has brown legs, that's the external. But the substance, the internal part of this chair, I cannot see with the human eye. I can't see the molecules in the atom of the fabric or the wood. Do you understand that illustration? So when you carry that transubstantiation idea now to the bread and the wine, what they're saying is that the bread and wine Through a prayer of consecration, right, by the clergy. By a prayer of consecration, this bread and wine transubstantiates or literally turns into the blood and body of Christ. The body and blood of Christ supernaturally. So reformers, the Protestant reformers, have an issue with this, especially when you read Hebrews 7, the sacrifice of Christ, and Hebrews 10. Uh, as well. So Hebrews 7:27 if you want to write that down and Hebrews 10:12 through 14. Also, when we look at church history, the Council of Chalcedon 8451, they said this at the end of their council. Vera homo, vera Dios. Truly man, truly God. Truly man, truly God. So why do I bring that up? It's because of this. When Christ ascended into heaven, did he ascend into heaven just spirit alone? How did he ascend into heaven? This is a theological question. Bodily. Which means what? Physically. He's in heaven, correct? Body and spirit. But from a Roman Catholic position when it comes to the eucharist or the lord's table they're saying that this bread and this wine that comes off of this table is literally the blood and literally the body so then is the body in heaven or is the body in the church right now when we take the eucharist and the bread do you see we got a gospel problem now we have a theological we have a biblical problem we have a gospel problem because the body of christ is not omnipresent The body of Christ, let me say that again, is not omnipresent. It's not everywhere at the same time. So that's why the Council of Chalcedon, 451, vera homo vera Dios, is very important. Truly man and truly God. Penance. We've got to to address penance. Ah. Who gave me this topic? (laughs) We need to talk about penance. Because this is a key conflict between Protestants and Roman Catholics. You have to understand penance if you're going to ever evangelize our Roman Catholic family and friends. Penance is reconciliation to God or forgiveness of sin. Reconciliation to God. So bringing two parties together or forgiveness of sin by performing a prescribed act as an indication of repentance. So when a person loses their justification, because remember, justification is a process. They commit a mortal sin. Remember, they look at mortal and venial sins. Mortal sin is the bigger sin. When they commit mortal sin, well, how are they going to be justified again? It's through penance. Penance, okay? So Protestants don't have an issue with what's called contrition. Contrition is... The turning away from sin out of a genuine sense of having offended God. Roman Catholics use the word contrition. It's a turning away because they've sinned against God and they're brokenhearted. As Protestants, we don't use the word contrition. We use the word attrition with an A. Okay? But we also don't have an issue with confessing sin. Okay? Do we not, at the beginning of every service, confess sin? We do. You confess sin at home when you... Sin against your spouse or your kids or your neighbor, right? So we don't have a problem with contrition, turning away. We don't have a problem with confession, uh, confessing one's sin. We have an issue with satisfaction, the penance of satisfaction. Why? Because if you do this penance of satisfaction, the sacrament, it's a work of satisfaction which satisfies the demands of God's justice. That's the issue. So when we sin against God, does God have a right to judge? The answer is yes. Why? Because we, God has given His law. It's in our heart. Whether you open a Bible, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you know Jesus or not, does not matter at this point. You know that lying is a sin. And that law is written upon your heart. And so when the law of God is violated, there is now a payment that needs to be paid in order to appease God, right? Well, from the Roman Catholic position, the way that you appease God's wrath or appease God's justice is that you have to do personally works of penance, works of satisfaction. So for example, I've heard... My Roman Catholic family and friends say, you have to do so many Hail Marys. Okay, so Hail Marys is asking Mary, praying to Mary to intercede on your behalf. Okay, that's what a Hail Mary is. Or so many Our Fathers. You have to recite the Lord's Prayer, which is Our Father, which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day. You understand what I'm saying, right? So, this penance, the issue is satisfaction. The question becomes is, what does God require in order to be satisfied when sinners break the law of God? Also, not only is there penance, there's what's called indulgences. Are you familiar with indulgences? I am getting the, the I or the signal, okay. So indulgences is a transfer of merit. Let me just finish these two uh, these two terms. Indulgences is the transfer of merit. In order for a person to gain heaven, again, a person must have sufficient merit. So if not, when a person dies, this person goes to purgatory, not hell. Purgatory means a purging place, a purging place. It's not hell. This person in purgatory can accrue merit, righteous merit, in purgatory in order to get to heaven. So you got heaven, you got hell, and then in the middle you got this middle ground called purgatory. It's not hell. It's a purging place. You can earn merit, and if you earn enough merit, you can get from this middle ground all the way up to heaven. The problem is the Bible doesn't talk about purgatory at all. The Bible does not talk about about purgatory at all. That's a major issue. That's a problem. That's a problem. So the Roman Catholic Church, I want to represent the Roman Catholic Church fairly. A lot of people believe that the Roman Catholic Church uh, sold indulgences, right, which is righteous merit, to the poor people in order to raise funds to rebuild the Basilica of St. Peter. Okay? I think that's a secondary point. From my research, I really believe that the Roman Catholic Church was trying to not create a fundraising event for St. Peter's Basilica, I think they were really genuinely thinking from their position that we want people to go from purgatory to heaven, this is a way you do it. I don't think it was a fundraising event. I could be wrong. I understand that. But I don't think it was strictly a fundraising event until you get to Johann Tetzel. You know Johann Tetzel? He was the German-Dominican preacher that was selling indulgences, and the Roman Catholic Church had an issue with him because he was making money. He was like, this is a great uh, profiteering event okay?" by selling indulgences. Let me talk about one more, and I'll close this out. I'm so sorry. Marriage. Marriage. That's another term. In the Roman Catholic Church, When someone gets married, again, this is an infusion of grace. Grace, remember, is not defined as unmerited favor. Grace is defined as what? Assistance from God to earn favor. That's how they define grace. And this grace is infused into this couple when they get married, when they get married. And so what it does is it strengthens the union of a man and a woman. And it accomplishes a real mystical union. Real mystical union. Let me just say this, okay, just to wrap up, is that if you're dealing with Roman Catholics, okay, there are two general categories that you need to be mindful of. And this is where we take doctrine and we make it a practice, right? Here's the application. You're gonna run into the first category. The first category is practicing believing Roman Catholics. They know what they believe, why they believe it. They think they don't need salvation. Why? Because they understand the Bible properly. They understand what the priest has taught them. They hold to Roman Catholic traditional dogma. So in that category, which is roughly 10 to 20% of the time, you need to know your Bible. And so I I would encourage you that you know these terms very well. Baptism, confirmation, communion, which is the Eucharist, penance. You need to understand how they look at marriage, taking holy orders, the final rites before death. So if you can understand that, so you have a background of what they're thinking, and you know your Bible well, and you know the gospel, that's the way to address that first group. Have a conversational style with them. Now, the second type of Roman Catholics you're going to run into 80% of the time are non-practicing Catholics. And what that means is, and I've asked a lot of my Roman Catholic family and friends about this. I say, are you a Roman Catholic? They say, yes. Do you go to church every Sunday? They say, no. Do you read the Bible all the time? They say, no. Do you believe in Jesus? Not really. Not really but you're a Roman Catholic, so help me understand that. So what I found out the hard way is that for many, 80% of them, eight out of 10 of them, they identify as Roman Catholic, why? Because it's a cultural thing. It's a family thing. It's an identifying thing. This is all I've ever known, Rolo, this is how I grew up. This is where I'm comfortable, this is where I'm safe. Yes, I don't know what I believe, like what you believe, I can't defend my position, but I identify because it's familial or cultural. Now, what do you do in that situation? In that situation, know the gospel, share the gospel. I love those situations. Right? This doesn't have to be a theological debate. If you're in category number one, they know what they believe and why. You're going to run into theological, biblical debates. Get to the heart of the gospel. What is the authority of the Word of God, and how does someone get saved? Those are the two areas you need to stay in. Don't talk about the Pope is the devil. If you get into that category, you're never going to get anywhere. It's a dead end. I've tried it. I know it doesn't work. Right? Get to the authority of the Word, okay, and how does someone get saved? First category. Second category, know the gospel. Be bold. Ask the Lord to help you. He will help you. And share the gospel. Like, when I smell blood in the water, I'm a shark. I'm going for it, right? Because I may never see this person again. And this person's soul is on the line. Eternity matters. Salvation matters. Christ is all and Christ is enough. If we care for people and we love people, we will share the gospel with them in a loving, firm, winsome way. Amen? All right. I'm sorry that I ran over. Let me pray for us. Father... I'm grateful for this time. This topic is, is, is not simple, Lord. It's enormous. I feel like I haven't done this topic justice today. But I pray, O oh God, that you would help my brothers and sisters in Christ to evangelize Roman Catholic family and friends in a way that's honoring and pleasing in your sight, that you would give us wisdom and discernment that comes from your word by your spirit, that you would give us the right words at the right time, and that you would call your people unto salvation For you are the great, glorious, almighty God, and you are worthy to be praised. In Christ we pray.
1: Amen.